of God's word. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away and you comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the nations, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Walter Brueggemann says that chapter 12 of Isaiah is quite different from chapters 11 and 13. But chapter 12 is a hymn. It is a poem, a hymn, very much like the 150 hymns that we have in the book of Psalms. Dr. Christopher Seitz says, you need to remember as you read chapter 12 that the first 11 chapters have in some way been dealing with the rise and fall of the powerful Assyria. So let me remind you of the Sitzimleben here, the setting in life. We're looking at the 8th century before the coming of our Lord. The Assyrians have grown stronger and stronger to the north, have swept down across the ten northern tribes, raping, plundering, looting, intermarrying, completely absorbing those people into their culture. They ceased to exist as a separate people. We still speak of the ten lost tribes of Israel. The two southern tribes were faced with similar danger. As Assyria began to wane, Babylon began to grow stronger. And this first portion of the scroll of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, are about that period when the prophet believes that surely someday God will send the right person. In chapter 11, immediately preceding our reading for today, he has said that from the stump and root of Jesse will come a king who will save his people. And you and I believe for us Gentiles, that is Jesus of Nazareth, a descendant of David, the king forever. Let's take a look at this text because it's very significant. First thing you will note is that twice in these few verses it says, In that day. And it means that deep within the human heart is a longing for a better time. A hope that one time, one day, God will do something so wonderfully well that all the peoples of the earth will turn and live in peace and harmony with each other? Do you feel like we keep going over the same old things again and again, same old problems? As I've been hearing snippets of the debates and reading articles and magazines and newsletters about those running for president this year, I'm reminded way back there when Richard Nixon was running, I remember seeing in a magazine a little girl standing in a crowd but right near the curb saying, Mr. Nixon, bring us together. And that was more than 30 years ago. And we have a similar need. Bring us together. Bring us together. 
Four years after World War II ended, Rodgers and Hammerstein first brought to the Broadway stage South Pacific. It ran five years, 1,925 performances before it closed on Broadway. Though it has been popular across the country and in various countries of the world, it's not been on Broadway again until now. It recently reopened on Broadway. Our theater group here at Boston Avenue are going to do South Pacific for our summer musical in July. We'll tell you a lot more about it when that time comes. But let me remind you of a few highlights of the story. Nellie Forbush is a Navy nurse. She's down in the South Pacific. The whole musical and play are based on the writings of James Mishner called Tales of the South Pacific. Rodgers and Hammerstein put this musical together from the stories that James Mishner was writing about his experiences in the South Pacific prior to and during World War II. Nellie Forbish is a, nun, a, a nurse who says that she's a, a cockeyed optimist and she's going to wash that man right out of her hair. You know, real perky, beautiful, talented. The question is, can she fall in love with this French plantation owner who has two little children? Their mother has died. Well, it looks like she's going to fall in love with Emile Debeck. Everything's working out fine till she gets a look at these two little children and discovers they are mixed blooded and she's from Arkansas. There's another drama going on. Bloody Mary wants the most talented, good-looking young Navy man to marry her daughter. His name is Lieutenant Cable. He's a graduate of Princeton University. Surely this enlightened young man will have no such problem. And she entices him to the island to meet her daughter. He seems to fall in love with her, but he's not about to take her home to Princeton. He's the one, though, that sings the little song, You Have to Be Taught to Be Afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made, of people whose skin is a different shade. You have to be carefully taught. If that's the case, we're still teaching, misteaching. If somehow we could see all the people on the planet as children of God, as those for whom Christ was willing to die, as those for whom God was willing to raise Jesus from the dead. Number two, I underline this part about you once were angry, now your anger has turned away. This week I was reading the Tanakh, which is the translation by Jewish rabbis, the Jewish Publication Society, the text used at both Congregation B'nai Imuna and Temple Israel here in Tulsa. And the rabbis translate that line this way. Once you were wroth, W-R-O-T-H, but now your wrath has turned. So wrath looks like sort of a past tense of making the noun wrath into a verb. Once you were wroth or experienced wrath, if you want to make it a noun, something in the past, but now you've turned and decided to What is the problem? What was the problem in the northern tribes? What's the problem in the southern tribes? What's the problem in Tulsa, Oklahoma? People are self-centered, not God-centered, not others 
centered. Terry Teachout had a column in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago. <clears throat> he was writing about three specific people. Uh, he was writing about Leonard Bernstein, writing about Orson Welles, writing about George Balanchine. And this is what he said. Leonard Bernstein had his greatest triumph in 1957 when he brought to the stage West Side Story. It was the biggest success of his life. And his biographer says that that success caused him to catch a fatal disease called important-itis. That from that point on, Leonard Bernstein decided he could never do anything average again. Everything he had to do would have to be super colossal, even deciding at one point in his life he would do an opera on the Holocaust about his people. But the truth is, he never did anything again as well as he did in 1957. And his biographer says the disease for him was fatal. Important itis. Then he focuses on or Orson Welles. At 23, Orson Welles was on the cover of Time magazine. And because he had achieved such notoriety by the age of 23, he was given an almost unlimited budget to make a movie called Citizen Kane. People who study films say it may still be the greatest movie ever made. Orson Welles was 25 by that time but it was the best thing he ever did. Never, ever did he do as well the rest of his life. As Leonard Bernstein's next effort on Broadway closed after seven performances, Orson Welles did one mediocre movie after another because, according to his biographer, he caught a fatal disease, important itis. And then he said, but compare George Balanchine with the two of them. George Balanchine produced one good ballet after another through a whole adult lifetime because he never caught that disease, according to Terry Teachout. He never caught that disease. He just saw himself as a person who went to work trying to instruct young women and men doing choreography on one more ballet, one more ballet, and he did wonderful work for 40 years. Terry was saying, in the arts, if you catch that disease of important itis, you've probably done the best thing sometime in your past. In a similar way, all of us who put self in the center of life are destined to be less than God has called us to be. And when God's wrath at our self-centeredness passes and he turns to comfort us, it's so we will learn to put God in center and others in center and life becomes what God created it to be. Number three. So I will trust in the A.A. Asher A.A. the I am who I am and I will not be afraid think what's going on. A huge power from the north has come down and crushed the ten northern tribes. And though that power is waning now, another is rising. Forerunners of today's Iraqis, the 
the Babylonians were rising. And for this ancient poet to say, I'm going to trust in the I am who I am and not be afraid. Michael Smith had a very interesting review of a new movie I thought in the Tulsa world this week. It's called The Year My Parents Went on Vacation. It's not, it's not a comedy. It's about a little boy who lives down in Sao Paulo, Brazil, 1970. When you go back that far, 38 years, the most exciting thing going on for most of the people was their soccer team. They had perhaps the greatest soccer player has ever lived Pele leading their team. And they believed they were going to win the World Cup that year, Pele leading their team. When suddenly, this little 10-year-old boy named Mauro was told by his parents that they needed a vacation, just the two of them. They were going to leave him with the grandfather while they were gone, but they would be back in time to watch the World Cup with him on television and cheer Pele and their team to victory. But they weren't going to vacation. They were Jews who had decided to become active in the politics of Bolivia, uh, I mean Brazil, in Brazil, trying to be sure that democracy had its way. In fact, the democratic candidates did not win. A dictator came to power, and they had to flee for their lives and go into exile. So little Mauro is taken to his grandfather, and within weeks the grandfather died. And now he has no one, not really anyone, but that neighborhood, a neighborhood of Jews, many of them older men and women, some his own age, and they took him in. And he began to see again the blessing of the bread on Sabbath, the prayers offered, the candles lighted, to come to those special, special times when God's presence was invoked and God's presence was felt. And little Mauro grows in that community. Grows. I will trust the Lord my God and I will not be afraid. Number four. This business about the wells of salvation. Joyfully, it says. Joyfully. Some of the translations I read this week change just a little. With great joy. One said, with great joy, I will heave up buckets full of water from the wells of salvation. You and I take water for granted the way we take electricity for granted and natural gas for granted. I told you just a little bit last week about Bob Scroggs' vision for the water wells of Nicaragua. You see, it was some years ago when we had a volunteer mission team that went to Nicaragua. Some were medical people, some were construction people. Bob was an engineer. He was with the construction people. But as they worked on a little Methodist church down in Nicaragua, they discovered that mostly women and children were spending a good part of their day carrying water. Bob saw that they were not only carrying water, water is very heavy, of course, but carrying these heavy buckets of water long distances he wanted to know how far. He started following some of them to see how far they had to go to get that water. And then he saw the condition of the water. They were dipping it out of muddy streams. It was filthy. It had animal feces in it. These people were drinking it, cooking with it, bathing with it. 
And Bob Scroggs came back to Tulsa and said, we could drill water wells in Nicaragua. He's a Rotarian at that time, very active in the Rotary Club prior to his death. And he said, Rotary's always looking for an international project. This would be it, drill water wells in Nicaragua. And so the downtown club here, coming near our 100th birthday now as a Rotary Club, 500 members strong. We're the ninth largest Rotary Club in the world, right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We bought a used truck and a used drilling rig, fixed it up, painted it, ferried it down to Nicaragua, started drilling oil, uh, water wells. And we had such great success that we bought a new truck and a new drilling rig and ferried them down to Nicaragua and kept drilling wells. Three weeks ago, it was announced at our club that we had now completed the 100th water well, pipe set, pumps on them, beautiful water. Various Rotarians have gone down to help, gone down to see, gone down to be a part of. They bring back slides, show them to the rest of us. The joy on these children's faces when this clear water is spilling out over them in showers, in baths, you can drink it and it's safe and it's wonderful. Can you get that kind of feeling here? that this old prophet is saying, you have wells. In fact, the rabbis say fountains. Fountains like artesian wells. This water bubbling up, bubbling up. Take a big, big drink. Let it spill down over you. These are the wells of salvation. Given to you by God. I hope you've been following the Pope's visit to New York. Because any time someone is speaking to as many people as he is in the name of God, in the name of our Lord Jesus, speaking of grace and peace and, and unity and harmony. It's got to be good for all of us. He is not John Paul II. He knows that. We know that. When Pope John Paul II became Pope, what a handsome man he was. I mean Photogenic. You remember those first covers we saw in magazines? And then we saw him on television again and again. Wind blowing through his hair, blowing his, his beautiful robes around, you know, as he got off planes and knelt down and kissed the ground that this country is also a beloved country of God. This country is a beloved country of God. This city is a beloved city of God. We saw the pictures when he was shot by the attempted assassin. We saw him in later years with Parkinson's and other ailments. We saw him get to the point he could hardly speak. When he would stand at the window there in Vatican City and try to speak to the people. And even when they couldn't hear him, it was like playing with the home crowd. These Italians would stand down underneath and weep and applaud for the Papa Viva la Papa. We love you. Whether we can understand you or not, we know what's coming out of your heart. Three years ago, April 2nd, he died. Thousands of people from all over the world made their way to Rome. I remember seeing one newsman who said he wanted to know just how long it would take him to, to make it all the way up to the coffin that held the Pope. It took him 18 hours. He got in line. He said no one was being rude. No one was breaking in line. No one crashing the line. It took 18 hours to make it all the way through the day and through the night. Three weeks after he died, Gail and I were there. 
we had never seen so many people, though we had been to the Vatican several times. We had never gone through security before. We had to go through metal detector stations when we were there. And still people were coming by the thousands just to see now the place where John Paul II was buried. Pope Benedict XVI is a modest-sized German professor. He's a teacher. He's not so handsome, but he's saying a lot of good things. If you listen very carefully, he's saying a lot of good things. And could you see his face yesterday when so many people were welcoming? Did you see him when they were singing happy birthday to him? There was love. There was grace. There was understanding. When he became Pope, he had to say something about John Paul II. This is what he said. He said, These last few weeks, Rome has been the heartbeat of the world. Hear the message of the angel to the women at the open tomb. Nothing has ended. Something beautiful has begun. You may not understand for a while. 